A quick note, we've moved our release date to every other Monday so that you can start your week off with this. Also, the idea for this episode was submitted to us by a listener. Thank you, Justin Wood. How many times have you met a person or maybe not even met them, just saw them for the first time and based on the way they were dressed, walked or talked, you made a judgment on the kind of person they might be, whether or not you'd get along with them, whether or not they were arrogant, mean, nice or trouble. How many times have you allowed that unconfirmed judgment to settle into your mind as the most likely truth, only to officially meet them later on and after getting to know them, be pleasantly surprised? and compelled to confess to them that they were nothing like you thought they were. We've all made this confession to someone and had someone make it to us. It's okay. It's a part of life. It's a part of us. Even as the most advanced human species of all time, we still maintain some of our primitive qualities. How quickly we made judgments about the safety of our environment or an approaching animal meant life or death when we lived amongst wild beasts. It's a survival mechanism. We can't turn it off. But sometimes we must be willing to ignore it. Just long enough to get to know a person. Just long enough to make a fair decision about the kind of person they are. We don't always adhere to this way of thinking. Not as individuals. Not as a society. But that's to be expected. We as people are flawed. But we at least expect our judicial system to value who a person is over the way he dresses. Or at least the family and friends of Brian Dennecke expected it. This podcast tells the stories of people we empathize with or root for. Sometimes because of what they did, and sometimes in spite of it. I'm Caleb Carter. This is Antihero. When he died, Brian Dennecke was a 19-year-old self-proclaimed punk rock kid, and he looked the part. A Boy Scout in his younger years, he traded in his uniform for homemade tattoos, a spiked green mohawk, and a spiked collar necklace to match. If he wasn't wearing black, he was wearing camouflage, and the only time he wore anything other than the combat boots and his leather jacket was when he was skateboarding. He came from a good home. His parents loved him unconditionally. But they weren't in love with the way he dressed and wore his hair. They wanted him to tone it down a little, only to avoid the stares and prejudice treatment it brought on him. But Brian had no interest in pretending. He felt that he had a right to be who he wanted to be, regardless of how people felt about it. And that belief got him into trouble from time to time. He had a minor record, but he wasn't exactly a troublemaker. Sure, he played a role in his fair share of altercations, but the people that knew him say he wasn't the kind of person who went looking for trouble. He was the kind of person that if trouble found him, he didn't go out of his way to avoid it. He was constantly teased, taunted, mocked, bullied, jumped, and he stood up for himself in all cases. Whenever a teacher, principal, police officer, or any authority figure showed up, they'd take one look at him and figure he had to be the root of the problem. To get away from the constant bullying, he dropped out of high school his junior year, opting to get his GED when he was 17. Brian was the life of the party, the glue that held friends and groups of friends together. He was deeply interested in art and took part in a public art project in Amarillo and Lubbock called the Dynamite Museum. This project consisted of creating hundreds of mock traffic signs and installing them in the cities of West Texas. They displayed abstract messages like, I'm still alive, road does not end, mama don't let your babies grow up in Lubbock, 
Life is a dream that keeps me from sleeping, and love makes the world go round. He was also the vocalist of his own punk rock band, and like many teenagers, dreamed of being famous. He was charismatic, a leader in the punk rock community, often organizing music events and gatherings in the city. He was kind, loyal, loving, and was always in search of his next laugh. His friends called him Sunshine. His tormentors called him Fist Magnet. One such tormentor was Dustin Camp, a 17-year-old honor roll student and star football player. If Brian was a punk rocker, then on the surface, Dustin was the complete opposite. Popular, smart, handsome, and athletic. Homecoming King material. Whereas Brian had dropped out, Dustin was planning for college. Brian wore a spiked green mohawk. Dustin was a clean-cut blonde. They lived on different sides of the city. They dressed differently. Cops and teachers treated them differently. One was in the in crowd and the other was an outcast. The world looked at them differently. Society valued them differently. In 1997, the IHOP across the street from the Western Plaza Shopping Center was a popular hangout for teenagers in Amarillo, Texas. On Saturday, December 6th, Dustin Camp was there hanging out with a large group of friends when he got into an altercation with John King, a friend of Brian's and a fellow punk rocker. After some taunting and name-calling, witnesses say Dustin got into his Cadillac, hopped a median, and narrowly missed King and his group of friends. This incident did not sit well with the jocks or the punk rockers. Tension built up over the following school week, filled with threats and taunts from both sides. Rumors spread that the two sides would meet at IHOP on the upcoming Friday and settle their differences. On Friday, December 12th, countless teenagers gathered at the local IHOP, not exactly sure what was going to happen, but knowing they didn't want to miss it. Dustin and his friends showed up first. He and his friends that rode with him had finished a bottle of whiskey before arriving. They were joined by nearly 30 friends and football players. Brian and his brothers showed up next, greeted by other punk rockers. Together, they totaled five boys and four girls. It wasn't long before things started to heat up between the two groups, and the manager of the IHOP saw the tension building up and came outside to play mediator. Uh, the punks were by the door. The jocks kind of had a half circle semi around them telling them, you know, won't you guys come fight, you know, come fight. He ordered them off the property, so they started making their way to the shopping center parking lot across the street. Brian and his friends headed over on foot. Dustin, along with a couple of friends, hopped in his car. Then the fighting started. As people from both sides fought, Dustin stayed in his car, weaving through the parking lot, even sideswiping a guy. Brian's brother and a female passenger in Dustin's car remember how things played out. It just seemed like he was trying to drive towards people, basically just trying to hit people. After he hit the first guy, Rob started yelling, let's go, let's get out of here. Dustin started to kind of make his way towards the exit. But instead of leaving, he whipped his car around and headed back towards the fight. Zeroing in on Brian, who saw him coming and started to run. And then the car hit him and he came up on the hood and then rolled underneath. And, um, you know, I, I felt two bumps and I was just praying that um, the bumps had been the median and not his body. I leaned up in between um, the two boys and, and I said, what if he's dead? And, um, you know, no one said anything. Did you think that Brian Denneke was dead? I knew in my heart that he was. 
As you might imagine, this brought an immediate end to the fight. Kid scattered and Brian's brother ran to his aid. His face and body were covered in blood. His skull and chest had been crushed under the weight of the car and his collarbone had been ripped off of his shoulder. As Brian lay dying, Dustin dropped his friends off, drove home, and went to sleep. He was awakened at 6 o'clock the next morning. Police had already noted the damage to his car. The hood was dented, there was blood splattered underneath, and there was an empty bottle of Crown Royal whiskey inside. When questioned, Dustin told the police that it was an accident. He said he saw Brian beating up one of his friends and he just wanted to knock him over with his car. But the parking lot was icy and his car slid. Brian slipped and fell. The car just went over him. Sergeant Rudy Montano, the chief investigator on the case, said that this was never looked at as an accident. No, no, it it was not an accident. There's just too many witnesses to say this was an accident. It was a deliberate act. The prosecution saw this as an open and shut case, and it was. When the trial started, there was no doubt that Dustin would be found guilty. There were countless witnesses who testified to what they saw. The physical evidence was easy to interpret. It was clear Brian had been running away, not fighting when he was hit. Dustin himself had admitted to hitting him. Evidence showed he'd made no attempt to turn the wheel, and he left the scene even though he knew he'd run Brian over. But what may have spoken to his intent the most was what he said after hitting him. Right after he hit Brian, he said um, something very offhand, like, I'm a ninja in my caddy, or something. I'm a ninja in my caddy. And he said, um, I bet he liked that one. In most cases, the defense spends their time trying to establish reasonable doubt. But in this case, there was not a reasonable person alive who could deny that Dustin had committed the act he was on trial for. So instead, the defense chose to put Brian on trial. On that night of December 12th, He was a mean drunk, and he was, and he was armed, and he was beating on people. They reduced him to being a high school dropout, a punk, brought up his record of underage drinking and vandalism by way of graffiti. They talked about his spiked mohawk and spiked necklace. They showed the clothes he wore that night, his patented combat boots and camouflage pants, even holding up his jacket in court that had a patch on it with the words, destroy everything. The attorney said, Is this the message we want to send our children? This is what the weapon-wielding goon wore the night of the altercation. Looks to me like he was on a mission to kill. And even though he dressed like this every day, the defense lawyer told the jury that on this particular day, on Brian's last day on Earth, he was dressed for war. He said that Dustin wasn't the villain, he was the hero. He was a good Christian, a good Texan, a good football player. Just a normal kid on his way to becoming a good man, one capable of offering something to society, unlike Brian. The punk rockers were the aggressors who had nothing to live for, the oddballs, the misfits who wore baggy black clothes, skipped class, smoked cigarettes, drank alcohol, listened to horrible music that glorified violence. Dustin was a brave teenager on his way to college who saw a friend getting beat up and did the only thing he thought he could. Taking a life, yes, but only while trying to save the life of a friend. He called it self-defense of a third party. When you argue self-defense, you argue that the act was intentionally done, but that the murder is excusable because it was self-defense. You said Dustin had to take immediate action and he took it, and if he had to live it over again, he would do it again. Yeah. Did you really mean that? Yeah, I did mean that. But that statement of yours implies that if he had to do it all over again, he wouldn't slow down. He wouldn't hit the brakes. He could have driven away and left his friends in the lurch. 
but he chose to come back. It was out of loyalty. It may have been misdirected loyalty, but it was out of loyalty to his friend. It only took the jury three hours to convict Dustin, but not of murder, of manslaughter. The crime of killing a human being without malice, but with recklessness. And honestly, as badly as Brian's family and friends wanted Dustin to be convicted of the more severe crime, this result wasn't all that surprising. The surprise was yet to come. Dustin would be sentenced to 10 years of probation. Up to this point, he'd never spent a day in jail, and the judge and jury had decided that even after taking a life, he shouldn't. Dustin would go on to graduate from high school, and one of Brian's friends still remembers what that day was like. He walked up there just, just strutting on that stage, got his diploma, walked down the aisle, and people cheered for him. The whole, half the high school is cheering for this miserable son of a bitch. He was welcomed back into his community and became even more popular and beloved than before. Everyone was so proud of him for the strength he showed in such trying times. The group of punk rockers sunk back into their place as well, even more hated than before. The judicial system had confirmed their place in the community, their place in society. They already knew they were looked at as different, but knowing something is one thing. Being shown something horrible that you already thought you knew brings on a whole new pain. In 2001, years after being sentenced to probation, Dustin would be arrested for his fifth probation violation in order to serve eight years in prison. A constellation prize for Brian's family and friends, but not exactly justice. When the trial started, Brian's friends and family wanted Dustin to be punished to the full extent of the law. Life in prison would do, and the death penalty would be fine too. The outcome of the trial left Brian's family and friends devastated. This was not the justice they'd yearned for. When people are involved in something like this, especially to kids, I sometimes find it surprising to see how vengeful people can be. Now, I've never gone through anything like this, so I know that my perspective is limited and maybe even misguided, but I'm often surprised to see that when a family has felt the pain of losing a loved one at the hands of another person, they look to cure that pain by inflicting the same pain on someone else's family in the name of justice. Faced with an unimaginable reality and unimaginable pain, the only thing that can make them whole and bring them peace is if the person responsible for their pain pays with his life. We live in a time where we can hop on a plane and fly to another country, hop on a spaceship and fly to another planet, transplant an organ from one person to another, FaceTime someone sitting right next to you or someone sitting 3,000 miles away. We are so advanced as a species, and yet we are still so primitive. When you strip everything away, at our core, we are still governed by an everlasting principle, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Do you think if the tables had been turned and it was Brian Dennecke who ran down and killed Dustin that night, that Brian Dennecke would have gone to prison? I think with Mr. Dennecke's past, it would have been a harder job of keeping him out of prison. Plus, let's face it, appearance means something. Does it? The way, yes, it means something in Amarillo, Texas, and it means something in New York City. Sometimes 
The conclusions we reach on appearance are improper and not justified. But in a murder case, they're pretty important. Appearance matters. Whether it should or shouldn't isn't a yes or no question. It's gray. It should matter, but not nearly as much as it does. Some say if you want to be looked at a certain way, you should dress in a way that represents that. Some say you should be able to wear whatever you want and have no conclusions drawn about you. I see the truth in both statements. Like I said, it's gray. What you choose to wear gives you an opportunity to express yourself and to communicate with the world. It's liberating, but it comes with a level of responsibility. To get a certain job, you're expected to dress a certain way. When you're meeting your lover's parents for the first time, you're expected to dress a certain way. Our society has rules, some written in the form of laws and some spoken and negotiated only in social circles. As far as clothes go, society's rules are pretty clear and well known. You will be judged based on what you choose to wear, but your life will not be deemed less valuable or less meaningful because of it. Who knew that this should have been written in the form of a law? If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean a lot if you rated it and left a review. It helps bring more visibility to the podcast and lets us know how we can improve. For more information about the show, visit us at antiheropodcast.com and follow us on Instagram at antihero underscore podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell a friend about us and don't forget to subscribe. This is Antihero.